When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The Art of Charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. And the show, of course, is about you. We're here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here. And if you're new to the show and you want to know where to begin or find out more about what we teach here at the Art of Charm programs in L.A., you can go to the website and we'll email you a starter kit of all the top podcasts and some free resources and ebooks that we have here at the Art of Charm. That's at theartofcharm.com, of course. And we'll send you all the fundamentals like body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, dating, attraction, business networking, negotiation, persuasion, all that stuff we'd wished we'd learned and mastered years ago. And of course, we have our live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California. In fact, we've got guys here this week from Israel, China, Europe, the U.S., and Canada, so it's kind of an international contingent as per usual, and our details on that are at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp, or give us a call here in the office, 888-413-7177, or you can email me, jordan, at theartofcharm.com. I read everything, and I'm looking forward to meeting you here at AOC. Today, I'm talking with Simon Sinek. We're actually going to talk about his books, starting with why and why leaders eat last. The way that the leadership culture is sort of broken here in America, why being the boss and the leader are not the same thing, how to apply leadership skills both in your family and at work, and why it's important to change the way that you do work and the way that you do lead if you really want to love your job and love your work and uh, go home feeling fulfilled. So enjoy this one with Simon Sinek. So tell us a little bit about who you are. I mean, it's funny. I found out about you because I took the Zappos tour and I was like, there's a book here that they're just giving away to everybody. That's really cool. Tony must really love this book. And Jenny, my girlfriend, picked it up and I knew better than to think I was going to read a book that I you know, got randomly anywhere, even if it was awesome, uh, because I don't do that. But she does. And she was like, this is really good. And then, of course, my friend Lewis Howes jumped in and interviewed you as well a while ago. And I thought, okay, I'm going to take a crack at, at Simon Sinek. Because I really love the message, which I'll actually, why don't I let you introduce yourself rather than butchering it and trying to be lame and read your bio? Well, I can tell you who I am. I don't know why you should listen to me. But, uh, but uh, you know, I have a clear sense of purpose. I wake up 
every single morning to inspire people to do what inspires them. It brings me unbelievable joy when I do it. And I find all different kinds of ways to do it, whether I'm speaking or writing or teaching or advising. It, it doesn't matter what I do. What matters is why I do it. And uh, I have a very, very clear vision of the world that I'm trying to contribute to, to trying to help build, which is a world in which the vast majority of people wake up every single morning, inspired to go to work, feel safe when they're there, and come home fulfilled at the end of the day. That's why I could do what I do. That's what I get up to. It sounds really simple, but yet I think it's a really tall order to inspire people to want to go to work and then feel really great about what they're doing at work and come home and be like, work was amazing. You know, you don't have to like work every day, but you do get to love it every day. We, we don't like our children every day, but we do love them every day. And it's the same. You know, work can be hard and work can be stressful and work can be difficult and problems can be overwhelming and challenges can be big, but we can still feel a desire to go and contribute and be a part of it. And most importantly, go every day because we want to do right by, by the people with whom we work. We don't want to let them down. And when you can get to that point, when you're actually no longer working for yourself, but you're working for the people around you, that's, that's when the real joy sets in. So you're working for like your team and your company's mission? Yeah. I mean, as, as a guy in the Navy SEALs told me, you know, we can rationalize anything and it's very easy to quit on yourself, but it's really hard to quit on others. Oh, wow. That's interesting. You can go for a run and rationalize when it starts to hurt that you should probably stop so you don't do any damage. But when you go for a run with someone, you keep going because you don't want to ruin their run. And it's the same at work. You know, if we can get to the point where we're no longer working for our promotion and our bonus, but rather we're working so that we're, together we can do well and we can see our friends succeed and our colleagues succeed and the organization succeed, not only do we do better ourselves, which is the great irony, but the joy we get from going to work is significantly higher. So how did you get the idea for this? I mean, are you like an HR expert or like, you know, what qualifies you to talk about loving work? Of course, you love your work now, not even a job because you created something amazing. But is it something that everybody should expect? And where do we start with it? Well, I'm not qualified at all to talk about the things that I talk about. Good. Me neither. We're on the same page there. I, I have no advanced degrees in the things that I'm talking about. There was no sort of academic study. It's not a commercial enterprise. That's not how it began. I'm a human being who fell out of love with the work that I was doing. I mean, I was living the American dream, supposedly. I owned my own small business. I made a decent living. We did great work and I had amazing clients. And superficially, on paper, I should have been happy. But I sure didn't feel happy. And I was embarrassed by that. I kept my feelings to myself because I should have been happy. Right. And yet I didn't want to wake up and do it again. And it was that, it was that reality that I, I set upon refinding my passion and made these discoveries, you know, how the, the brain processes uh, information and discovered these layers of why, how, and what we do. Yeah. So what was your business before? I had a little strategic marketing consultancy. And you were like, I'm doing this, I'm running my own thing, I have a great team, and this is really, it should be awesome. And so by not liking it, you felt like something about me is wrong, because the American dream says get a great job, make money. The, the only way to one up that is to have your own business where you make money. And so by not loving it, what did you, you felt conflicted, right? Like uh, panic is what I had. There's surprise some combination of I'm supposed to love this because, you know, feeling like otherwise I'm in some sort of entitled brat for not loving it. And then the other level must have been. And I feel this sometimes even with my own business as much as I do love it. Like, whoa, crap, this is it. 
This is the top level. Oh, that's so depressing. I, I was working harder and making less, and this is that. That's the. That's it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's all those things. And so once I discovered this pattern and committed myself to learning my why and became obsessed with it, my passion was restored to levels I'd never experienced. And that's when I realized that every single one of us has the right to love what we do. I believe that loving our work is a right and not a privilege. It's not for the lucky few who get to say, I love my job and everybody else goes, oh, you're so lucky. You know, it's a right that we all have and there should be an expectation that the people for whom we work create an environment in which we want to show up every day and be our natural best and we should demand it. And because I was able to find that love and passion for my work again, I decided to tell my friends about it and my friends had me tell their friends about it and the more people who asked, I just kept saying yes. And I made the decision to talk about it to whomever wanted to listen. It never crossed my mind to rights protect it and copyright it and and make it exclusive. And my goal was to give it away. Like I said, if it's a right, it should be available to everyone. Yeah, interesting. So how did you start to find the passion for doing this again? I mean, where did you just wake up one morning and you're like, how do you just decide to love something again? I mean, there must have been a process somewhere. You know, I think we all have revisionist history when it comes to remembering these things where he's like, and then I woke up and it was perfect. And it's, it's not like that. Yeah, it's like you went surfing and you saw the sunrise over a rock and you're like, I love my business again. It's not like that. It is evolutionary, not revolutionary. You know, the results may be revolutionary, but the process is evolutionary. It's not sudden and it can be slow. And and for me, the process, you know, of me being in that dark place was about three or four months. I went through this process of discovering my why. And that was really intense and overwhelming. But then the practice of actually understanding how to use my why and make decisions with my why and the discipline to turn things down that I knew would put me out of balance again. And even if it cost me money, that it was the right thing to do, like that took courage and that took time to really get good at. So your first book is starting with why. And I think people are like, what's the why? What is the why? I'll ask on behalf of the 80,000 people who just asked that question in their own head. Yeah, there's a biology to this. There's a naturally occurring pattern the way the brain processes information. And it's based on three levels. And every single organization on the planet, even our own careers, always function on these three levels. What we do, how we do it, and why we do it. Every single person on the planet knows what they do. This is the job we do, the services we offer, whatever it is. Some are able to articulate how they do it, the things that we think make us stand out or different or special, the things we say in our interviews. But very few people can clearly articulate why they do what they do. And by why, I don't mean to make money. I don't mean to get a promotion. I mean, what's your purpose? What's your cause? What's your belief? Why does your organization exist? Why did you get out of bed this morning? And why should anyone care? And that's the thing I'm talking about. We have to have all three pieces in place. Most people don't know the why. And so that's the missing piece. How do we start to figure that out? I mean, there's a lot of people right now that are working either for their own business or for somebody else who are like, what the fuck is the point of this? Pardon my Latin, but I think it's a really bold question that a lot of people don't ask. And, and I sort of asked it before going on to Wall Street as an attorney. And then I was like, money. And then I got there and I was like, this sucks. And why am I really doing this? I don't even care about the money. And then I was like, I have no good reason to be here. Peace. And that was lucky for me because I was not that deep into Wall Street. But I think there's people right now who are like, I've been working for 30 years or 20 years or 15 years in this industry, or even just five if you're young. And you're like, I never bothered to figure out why I just needed a job. It's partially due to our parents and our guidance counselors. You know, yes, people tell us, get a job, get a job, get a job, find a job, find a job, find a job. Nobody tells us, find a job you love. Yeah. It's, not, it's not the standard, you know? 
and we're told, get a job that pays well. Nobody tells us, get a job you love, even if it doesn't pay well. And ironically, when you take the job you love, you will ultimately make more. <laughs> but most importantly, you'll be happy. The problem with money is it's addictive. And so once you start making a lot of it, it's very hard to tear yourself away unless health or some other reason tears you away. Oh, that's interesting. You know, these are human conversations. These are human questions you're asking. Like, do you want a happy family or do you just want to show off and say that you have kids? Well, of course we want a happy family. Well, do you want a job you love or do you want just a job that pays the bills? Well, of course I want a job that I love. Okay, do you want a job that you love or do you want a jo just a job that makes lots of money? Well, of course I want a job that I love. And like there is a hierarchy. There's nothing wrong with making money, but there's a hierarchy. And having a job you love should come first. And you absolutely are entitled to make lots of money, but not at the expense of your happiness and your health. Right, yeah. Well, I think, a lo and a lot of people don't make that choice correctly, if you can say that a choice is correct or incorrect, just because you don't think about it in advance. You think, I'm gonna learn to love this just as much as any other job. Or, or if you're like me, you grow up thinking, it's irrelevant whether or not you like your job, man. It's your job. Well, and it gets worse. There are these things called mirror neurons inside our bodies. And it's, it's one of the ways in which we learn. And the trouble is, is, is if you hate your job, well, there's good data to show on this, that if you work late or if you take a lot of business trips, it has a minimal to zero impact on the raising of your children. But if you don't love your job, it has a massive impact on the raising of your children. Um, beyond the fact that you come home grumpy, short-tempered, and tired, you know, that has an impact on your family. It has even greater repercussions, which is these mirror neurons fire. In other words, our children learn that work, quote-unquote, is something that makes you grumpy, short-tempered, and tired. And so when they go get a job and they are grumpy, short-tempered, and tired because of their work, they don't perceive that as something being wrong. That's what they've learned work is. Absolutely, yeah. And we're teaching that to our children. We're teaching that to our children that work is a place that sucks the life out of you, and that's okay. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all gonna give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Now, back to the show. Yeah, that sucks. And I definitely grew up that way. Like, I think my dad enjoyed his job to a certain extent. I mean, he certainly took pride in it, but he loved to come home being like, this is terrible and you waste all my money, you know, and not he wasn't that evil, but and sometimes he was actually. But, you know, his dad was even worse from what I hear. My grandpa died when I was really young, but he was a cranky son of a bitch and he hated his job and everyone knew it. Yeah, that's a really good point. So you start to then integrate that into your your psyche slash mirror neurons, which we've discussed on the show before, where you just go, yeah, I'm cranky because I had a long day of work and I hate everything and nothing can make it better and that's just the way the cookie crumbles and that sucks. Anyone can have a long day, everyone can have a tough day, but if you have one every day, then that's a problem. My girlfriend, actually, she recently left a job that she didn't like and I'm just so thankful because she didn't want to leave because... You know, my parents will be mad and other people will be upset and, you know, what will people think? And I'm like, I don't care. I'm sick of you coming home and, like, throwing your shoe against the wall, you know, but she's a great person. I'm not, she didn't literally do that every day, but you could tell when she came home, she was like, friggin' commute, this woman, this, and this stupid project. She loves everything about life in every other way. So the fact that this was bugging her wasn't just like, there goes Jenny complaining again. It was like, this job obviously is sucking the life out of her. And she's becoming a little bit of a different person. I don't really like these changes. Let's get you out of here. Well, I I think it's even worse than that, too, which is we use that energy suck to justify our failings inside our own relationships. When we fail our boyfriends and our girlfriends and they complain to us, we sort of take this victim pseudo accountability. We go, I'm sorry, babe. It's just, you know, my job, it's it's just really hard. And, you know, it's I know I know you understand. You know, and that's okay now and then. As you said, we have bad days, we have bad weeks. Right. But if that is the excuse for not showing up in a relationship, then there's something wrong with the job. 
there's only so much that any other one of our mates can take before they say, you know what, why don't you just keep the job then and I'm going. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't need to be here. Why do I need to be here? And it's not everybody's fault. I mean, I understand Like when, when you're in it, when you're in the thick of it, it's you really do look at the job and you, and you really do feel bad that you're failing your girlfriend. But for some reason, we don't fix the job. We just ask the girlfriend to sort of be patient or deal with it, you know? Yeah, that's a, a really good point. It's kind of like, well, you obviously just don't understand how important all of this stuff is. Or it's not even that aggressive. It's just like, hey, I'm really, really sorry, but, you know, I, it's my job. It's nothing personal. I love you. It's my job. Right. Yeah, that, that's confusing to me. It should be, right? But it's not, according to American culture and probably other cultures as well. Yeah, they, they say that America, that Europeans work to live and Americans live to work. There's probably some truth to that. What do you think causes this? Is it cultural? And can it be undone? And obviously it can, because that's what we're talking about. It is cultural. And the way that companies run these days has not always been the case. We accept a lot of the business practices and business theories of the modern day as quote unquote standard, and yet they're not. For example, the concept of shareholder supremacy, where you put the shareholder before the employee or the customer. Think about that for a second. Yeah, exactly. Um, that idea was originally floated in the late 1970s. It was a theory and a bunch of professional executives who were hired to run companies that they didn't find, that they, they weren't the founders, they embraced it because their compensation was tied to the outside, to the equity. This is the folly of it. Nobody actually cares about the shareholder. It's just that your compensation is tied to the equity, so you're servicing yourself. You know, you could tie their compensation to customer satisfaction or something and, and guess where all the attention will go, you know? Oh, yeah, that's interesting. So that's a theory, and I would argue not a very successful one. We can discuss all of the science and results behind that, if you like. But even things like mass layoffs. You know, we accept the concept of mass layoffs at the end of the year when a company has a bad year to balance the books as normal. We consider that as normal. But there is no such thing as mass layoffs to balance the book in the United States prior to the 1980s. It did not exist. It existed in very, very rare forms only to save the company in, in extreme cases. But as a standard practice, using people to balance numbers, it did not exist. In other words, these are not the way businesses have always run. We are feeling the effects of decisions that were made in the 80s and 90s in boom years where people were doing everything that they could to increase their own profits, including the dismantling of something called the Glass-Steagall Act, um, which was implemented to prevent another Great Depression from happening. Because there were all these things wrong with the stock market during the Great Depression, you know, things like overspeculation and conflicts of interest where banks could own the retail side and the investment side, and they outlawed that. They precluded banks from owning, doing retail and investment banking in one, one organization. And do you know how many stock market crashes we had between the Great Depression and the 1980s when they started repealing Glass-Steagall? I actually don't know. Zero? The answer is zero. There were zero stock market crashes for 50 years when these uh, safeguards were in place. And in the name of profit, they started dismantling Glass-Steagall and dismantling these safeguards. So now retail banks and investment banks can be the same organization, J.P. Morgan Chase, mm -hmm. for example, right? And guess how many stock market crashes we've had since the 1980s? Yeah, I don't know. They're like four or five? We've had three. I know there was one in the 80s. We had dot-com. Oh, yeah, the dot-com. That's right. Yeah, we've had three. We've had three. 1987, 1987, dot-com, and 2008. Yeah, I threw a couple in there as a bonus just because uh, <laughs> my Wall Street history. How many times we've come damn close, right, is another story. The point is, is that we've given the keys to the asylum to the inmates. And, like, people are surprised that it's 
It's a madhouse. So when we think about these incentives, you're saying the incentives are misaligned because the incentives are, hey, I'm looking out for the shareholder, but I'm really just looking out for myself because I'm compensated based on the shareholder. How could we realign incentives? I mean, customer satisfaction at some level does dictate it because if you don't have customers, you don't have business. But we couldn't necessarily, or could we, realign the incentives to be like, hey, make this such a kick-ass place to work and you'll get compensated somehow based on that. But again, it goes back to that concept of hierarchy that we talked about right at the beginning about loving your job, right? Yes, you're right. Customer satisfaction matters. So is it make money, make your customers happy? Or is it make your customers happy and make money? It's like I, I go see companies and I've, I can't tell you how many presentations I've sat in where a CEO goes, our number one priority is growth. Our number two priority is customers. And our third priority is employees. And you're like, hey, man, is that upside down? So you work there and you're like, okay, let me understand. Abstract numbers are more important than me and people outside are more important than me. Okay, yeah, let me work hard and give you my best. Employees, customers, numbers, that's how it works. So if you make your employees happy, guess what your employees do? They make your customers happy. And if your customers are happy, guess what they do? They give you their money. Like there's actually a logic. The logic the other way actually breaks down. It's not that if we make money and it'll make our customers happy and if we make our customers happy, it'll make our employees happy. Like the logic actually breaks. So there's a hierarchy. Make money, absolutely, but money is not the result. Money is the fuel to continue to grow the organization and, and see a vision come to life and, and see your people grow and become the best they can be. Money is fuel. And people who view money as fuel, the companies that view money as fuel, uh, usually tend to be a lot stronger than people who view money as the result, that though they may do well in the short term, really struggle over the long term. Ah, huh. uh, that is very interesting. And I can see small businesses running that way where it's like, we're a family and we're this, we're that, you know, but big business, I can see where that would be really a struggle. But I can also see where it wouldn't even be interesting because if the shareholder is your main concern, you're like, well, I'm not going to freaking worry about the team of people here. I mean, I can always hire somebody else. So yeah, exactly right. And at the end of the day, you know, companies care about innovation and they care about productivity and they care about all these things. And all of these things are born out of, da, 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 wait for it, wait for it, people, you know? How do you drive innovation? Well, people have to have ideas and people have to be willing to take risks. But if they're afraid for their own jobs because if it doesn't go well, they'll lose their jobs, then they're not gonna take risks and they're not gonna offer their best ideas. You see this a lot in companies where there are people who've been there for a long time where the old timers don't share everything they've learned over the years with the new kids because they're afraid that if they share what they know, then they become disposable. Right. In other words, they don't feel safe. And so they keep all this amazing learning information to themselves, which is ultimately bad for the company. That's because of bad leadership. That's all that is. That's not the people. That's because of the environment in which they're asked to work, where they're asked to compete against each other as opposed to work with each other. And you get the behavior you reward. You know, most companies reward individual performance, hit the number, get the bonus. There's very little peer recognition, which is the most important and most valuable of all. And there's very little group recognition or, or group incentive. So no one should be surprised of the companies we've built because we built them. But now we have the opportunity to, to, to change them. You know, the fact that so many people don't love their jobs and we're seeing rising rates of cancer and diabetes and heart disease and all these stress-related disorders. And we know now that, this is a fact, by the way, more baby boomers die from suicide than car accidents. Whoa, really? That is a fact. Oh, I can't even believe that. I mean, I believe you. You wouldn't say it without looking it up. You'd get called out. But that's, a, that's extremely extreme. No, that's, that's CDC information. That's not some, like, you know, the interweb told me. That, like, that's that's from the CDC. That's so wild because you, you feel like everybody knows somebody that's died in a 
car accident, but you think like suicide when it happens is like such a huge right. piece of news in your circle. But if more people are dying because of that, then it's that's a huge disaster. More baby boomers, yeah. So these are symptoms. These are signs. I'm not saying they're all because of stress, but you know the fact that the numbers are rising, stress has a large part to do with it. And this is not normal. And this is not good. And we are feeling the effects of the decisions that were made in the 80s and 90s, which means it's going to take us 10 or 20 years to put it back again. But we kind of should put it back again. Trust and cooperation and feeling like you want to go to work and loving going to work and feeling that your own leadership like really values you and your ideas and, and wants to see you grow as a human being, that should be normal. That should not be the exception, nor that should that be some sort of fantasy. And the joke is, here's the, the big joke of it all, is it's actually better for business. Like it, it's actually better for business. That's the, that's the biggest joke of all. That's the thing that I think a lot of higher level corpos and leaders don't really believe, right? Because otherwise this would be a really easy sell. Like, hey, by the way, yeah. here's numbers that show this is better. And they're like, well, shit, I need that. Right. But the problem is, is that numbers are not necessarily demonstrable in a quarter. It's the difference between investing and gambling, right? We invest in things like our children. We invest in things like education. We invest in things like the future. Will anybody realize the value of a college education the day after they graduate? Of course not. It's an investment. Like, that's why we did it, right? We're investing in our own futures by spending four years to go to college, sometimes more. And that's the way we're supposed to treat investing, right? But we don't. We largely treat investing like gambling, which is we take a bet on GE. I'm going to put my money in today, and I'm going to bet that it goes up by the end of the day. It's day trading, right? Or I'm going to put my money in this month, and next month my financial advisor will move it. That's not investing, that's betting, that's gambling. And I have no problem with that model. The problem I have is that there's too many companies that embrace that model, and so it's unbalanced. There should be a, a proportionate number of companies that we can bet on and a proportionate number of companies that we can invest in. The problem is, well, there's very few companies that we invest in, most of them we're just taking bets on. And it's a system of gambling, which achieves short-term gains. Uh, the liabilities are high, the risks are high. And ultimately, it's not good for the company or, or even our economy, demonstrated by the past 20, 30 years and, and all the recessions that have followed. So let me ask you this, and, and I'm out of my depth economics-wise here, so you may have to correct me, but doesn't Japan think more long-term in terms of the way that a company performs? I remember reading about this a long time ago, about how you know Americans are looking at like quarterly, and Japanese people are looking at like five to ten years out, and that allows them to perform better because they're not looking for short-term results at the expense of long-term results. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, let's not confuse two things because the Japanese economy has never really recovered from the last recession, and that's for different reasons. That's because they attempted to reform. Korea is a better example because Korea actually, when they had problems with their economy and the stock market crashed, they actually started spending more money because they were investing, there's that, there's that word again, they were investing in their people and their infrastructure and their economy, and they actually came out of it very, very successfully by, by spending, where the Japanese went into extreme reform, and it actually has dragged out the recession. But in terms of the companies themselves, you're 100% right. Companies like Toyota and Sony, the reason in the 80s and 90s they gave American companies such a run for their money is because they had very, very long-term visions and they cared about their people, they looked after their people, and their people literally gave their lives to the company. You worked at one company your whole life. Here, we work for a company for a year, maybe two years, and we prioritize our own success before the companies, where in Japan, people were prioritizing the company's success, sometimes even before themselves. And there's an intense love and loyalty that goes with that. It's, an, it's incredibly fulfilling then when the company does well because we all share in that success. 
Japanese people are notoriously overworked and commit suicide because of work-related stuff. Yeah, to your point, let's not oversimplify these things. And it's not a perfect apples-to-apples comparison for all the cultural reasons and all the intensity in education. And same with Korea, you know? Like, they're having huge problems with suicide and amongst teenagers because of the, the pressure and intensity to get into good schools, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are other more complicated issues, to your point. But at the end of the day, there's something to be said for the pride of coming to work. Yeah, I would definitely agree there. And no one can argue that coming out of the devastation of World War II, that Japan raised their economy, thanks in part to the Marshall Plan, but raised their economy to be one of the most dominant economies in the world in, in a mere 50 years. I mean, that's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, well, especially if you don't have a massive defense budget, you can probably focus on a lot of things. What if we're running a business and we want to change the way things are because we see this happening? And and it's funny because I saw this at the Art of Charm a few years ago and AJ and I literally kind of gave people a choice. It's like, do you want to stay and do this or you, is this a paycheck type of thing for you? And we... You know, not everyone was honest, but we figured out who was and wasn't. We started to hire people who were a better fit. It's funny because now it's like, oh, somebody has to fit the culture. Duh. But five years ago, especially if your business has no money because it's a small business, you're like, culture, whatever, man. This person will take the job and they'll take it at this price. So they're hired. Right. And and then the, they won't be as good and they'll either quit or you'll have to fire them and you have to replace them. And that costs you time and money. And ultimately, if you just hired the right person in the first place, it's kind of like dating, you know? Yeah. I talk about hiring people like adopting kids, right? You don't just like look at the specs, measure the kid, he's the right height. Okay, adopt that one. You're like, all right, we're going to let this kid join our family. We're going to give him responsibility over the other kids. And we're going to give him keys to all of our stuff. Let's make this decision slowly. You know, it's the same thing, which is you're going to hire someone. You're going to give them responsibility over your other employees. You're going to give them keys to all your stuff. You know, you want them to be productive members of the family. And so you want to make sure that they share your values, that they get along with the other kids, that that you guys can socialize together. You know, I'm a great believer that it's not just about interviewing people in the office. I think you should go out for dinner and take someone out for drinks and see how they perform when they're social and they talk about themselves and talk about their families. And Do you share the same values and beliefs? Or is it just like, hey, you can do the job. Here's your pencil. See you on Monday. That's not a great model. You know, you're good looking. Let's get married. Not a good model. Yeah, that's the Los Angeles model. So one of the things we have to do when we become leaders, and remember, there's being a leader and being the boss are not the same thing. Oh, good distinction. Being the boss means you have authority, but being a leader means you've taken responsibility for those in your charge. That's what leadership is. And so we have to make this transition, which some do easily, some have a harder time, and some never make the transition, which is when we're junior, the only job we have to do is be good at our jobs. And if you're really good at your job, they'll promote you. And they'll eventually promote you to a level where you're now responsible for the people who do the job you used to do. But they don't teach us how to do that, right? And that's why we get managers, because the person in charge may actually be better at the job than everybody else, because that's what got them promoted. And so we have to go through this transition where we have to understand that we're no longer responsible for the results. We're now responsible for the people who are responsible for the results. We're no longer responsible for getting the job done. We're now responsible for the people who are responsible for getting the job done. That's what leadership is. And that skill is not well taught inside or outside our companies, not, not in the companies and not, not in, in business schools. We teach management. And so we leave it to luck that some people will end up being decent leaders. So we have to go through this transition. So for anybody who's already in a position of authority who wants to be a leader, 
you have to take yourself through this journey, which is to understand that you're no longer responsible for the number. You're responsible for the people who are responsible for the numbers. And help, you know, if they feel that you care about their growth and their happiness and their success, they will give you their blood and sweat and tears. They will give you love and loyalty and see that your company grows and your vision comes to life. That's the biological response. All of this is grounded in biology. That's what has to happen. Just because you're in charge doesn't mean you're a leader. We have to choose to be the leader. And that takes a lot of hard work. It's um, sometimes thankless, kind of like being a parent, sometimes a thankless job. It takes a huge amount of courage. The results are not immediate. It's like exercise. You know, you go to the gym, you come home, you look in the mirror, you see nothing. You go to the gym the next day and you come home, you look in the mirror and you will see nothing. And worse, you're in pain. But if you're committed to this regime and you have the discipline to stick with it, you start to notice yourself getting stronger and you start to like the way you look in the mirror better and you start to see the effects. And leadership is the same. If you practice and practice and practice, putting sometimes your interests aside for the lives of others, it starts to become easier. You start to get better at it. You start to earn the love and loyalty from people. You start to enjoy it more and you start to uh, uh, enjoy the fruits of it. Not only the joy of being the leader, there's no greater joy that a leader will experience like a parent than seeing their people realize that they're capable of more than they thought they were. And that's the intense love and joy of being a parent as it is the intense love and joy of being a leader. Excellent. So what, what if we're not the boss, then can we still be the leader if being the lo- boss and leader aren't the same? Of course. Leadership has nothing to do with rank. Leadership has nothing to do with rank. Leadership is taking the responsibility for the people to the left of you and people to the right of you. If you happen to have rank, that just means you're responsible for more people, right? Leadership can happen at any level. And so if we're in the middle we needn't worry ourselves about what the guy at the top is doing or doing wrong. I hear this all the time. The people at the top don't get it. What do I do? Like you ignore them. That's what you do. Because you can't control them and you can't influence them. And what you preoccupy yourself with are the people whose names you know and faces you recognize. And you commit yourself to seeing that they grow and they become something bigger than, than they thought they were. I'll tell you a story that, that captures it perfectly. There's a young officer I know in the United States Air Force who had three things happen to her all at once any one of which would have been tough to deal with, right? She was promoted to a lieutenant colonel, so she's now officially management, right? She was given her first command. That's a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. And she was deployed to Iraq for 365 days. All of those happened simultaneously. Her first command, she was put in charge of facilities on base, so housing, food, all of the events they would do to keep morale up, you know, laundry, everything was under her, and, and literally thousands of people worked for her. The, the previous five people had been fired before her and it was a notoriously badly run group and she's a go-getter and she's an overachiever and she's going to turn it around and, and do good, right? This is what she put on herself and it was a miserable failure. It, nothing was going right and people didn't respect her and people who were supposed to report to her failed her and wouldn't take her seriously. Every night she would go back to her quarters and cry and realize that she was struggling and she wasn't going to be the success that she hoped she was going to be. And her vision of what she imagined for herself wasn't coming to reality. And so she finally, after six months in, she just gave up. She just accepted that her vision of what success looked like was not going to happen. And it was at that point she was able to make the transition that if the numbers weren't going to work out, because it was all metrics driven, right? If the numbers were going to fail her and the numbers weren't going to work, then she would just commit herself to making the lives of those who were deployed with her to make their lives as fantastic as possible until they have to get to go home. And she preoccupied herself now with her people and that their opportunity to contribute and succeed rather than just simply making the numbers. And everything about her leadership style changed. 
and they ended up being unbelievably, unbelievably successful. All the people who worked for her for the first six months, her direct reports, not a single one of them stayed in contact with her. All the people who worked for her for the second six months, every single one of them stayed in contact with her. And when I met her and uh, saw her when she got back from Iraq and I asked her about this, this journey that she went on, she said to me, and she teared up as she told me, of all the things she was telling me about leadership and results and all of this stuff and turning things around, she, she choked up and said, I've never felt a joy more powerful than seeing my people achieve more than they thought they were capable of. In other words, the joy of leadership is the same thing as the joy of parenthood. And that's amazing and inspiring, but how do we get there if we just feel like right now we're just stuck and our boss doesn't give a crap? Well, the most important thing to do is to go on this journey with someone else. Like anything, the journey to become the leader that you wish you had it should not be done alone. You should have a leadership buddy where you both commit to keeping each other. It's like a running buddy, right? We, as we said before, you, you can easily quit on yourself, but it's hard to quit on someone else. And so if you commit with someone else that we're going to take care of the people around us, we're going to take care of each other. We're going to see that we both become the leaders we wish we had so that our people, the people whose names we know and faces we recognize, love coming to work. That'll be our commitment. And we're going to do this together. It becomes a really, really powerful experience. It's the doing it with someone. Going on the leadership journey by yourself is really, really hard, nearly impossible. But to do it with someone, whether they're inside or outside the organization, you both commit to be better leaders, even if it's a friend who works at a different company. That's the way to do it. Do it with someone. I mean, can we apply this stuff to outside of business, maybe to our families and things like that? I mean, it seems like these principles are actually maybe even more applicable to family and kids. Of course, of course. What we're talking about is groups of human beings. You know, we, a group of human beings we call a business. That's all a business is. It's a group of human beings, right? What's an organization? It's a group of human beings. What's a family? What's a, a neighborhood? What's a, a, a nation state? What's a city? So these leadership principles are applicable to, to any place where there's a group of human beings that you want to work together and support each other to see the group um, thrive as a whole. So what kind of things can the audience do literally right now to apply some of this stuff? Like, is there a takeaway where it's like, once this interview stops, do X, Y, and Z to start moving the ball forward? Sure. So again, remember, leadership is a practice. It's a daily practice. Simply making one big decision even if it's the right decision, doesn't make you a leader. It just means you made one big right decision. That's all it means, right? Leadership is a daily practice. It is a lifestyle. It is uh, just like the, the decision to have children. It's not about should we have kids? It's the question is, do we want the lifestyle of raising children for 18 years? You know, it's a lifestyle choice. Having the kids is the fun part. You know, getting the promotion is the fun part. Now the hard part begins, right? So it's the choice. If you want to take that choice and have that lifestyle of being a leader and it comes with a lot of work, and real sacrifice of time and energy, you start practicing. Literally, you start practicing putting the lives of others sometimes ahead of your own interests. So if you go into the kitchen, and the, a lot of companies have a little kitchen with coffee, and you pour yourself the last cup of coffee, do you put the pot back empty? You know, no big deal. Someone will make the next pot. Or do you uh, make a new pot of coffee when nobody's watching? That's, that's, that's leadership. When you're standing in an elevator, running late for a meeting, and the doors start to close, and someone runs towards the elevator, what do you do? Do you, do you catch the doors? You do sort of give that shrug like, ah, sorry. You hide in the corner so they can't see who it is that didn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Women start looking for their lipstick at that exact moment. That's leadership, which is you, you arrive a few seconds later and you sort of, you know, you hold the door for someone else. A friend of mine says his standard of the way he judges leadership is if a leader is someone who asks you how you're doing and actually cares about the answer. If you don't care how somebody's doing, don't ask them. Because if you truly care about the answer and you're running to a meeting, and they say, yeah, I'm having a hard day, you have to stand there and listen. 
you can't run away and say, yeah, yeah, can we get back to this later? I've got to go to a meeting. So, so this is, this is what leadership is. It's a daily practice of putting, uh, the lives of others sometimes ahead of your own interests. And just like exercise, it's sometimes a little painful to start with, but you start small and it gets easier and easier and you get stronger and stronger. It's a muscle that you build. Leadership is a muscle that you build. Great. Thanks so much, Simon. I really appreciate this. And I know people running businesses and not running businesses will really appreciate the advice, especially the action, because we're all about sort of habit formation and things like that here at Art of Charm. And it's great to see leadership being a practice and not like a meeting that you have every quarter where you pat each other on the back. Yeah. And leadership training is a, is a two day offsite once a year where half of it is spent playing golf. Yeah. No, right. Leadership is not an event. It's a daily practice. Thank you. And where can people find more? I mean, you've got a couple books and we'll link those up in the show notes, but is there anything that you want to tell us about before we call it a day? Yeah, you know, all the usual suspects in Facebook, Twitter, you know, we have a website called startwithwhy.com for individuals or small businesses who are interested in finding their why. We have a great course on there called the Why Discovery Course. And there's tons of free resources for everybody else as well on little tips on finding your why and, and lots of other good stuff too. All right, then. Sounds good. Hey, thanks for your time and thanks for helping. Uh, thanks for giving me a forum to help me share my ideas. You got it, man. Take care. Appreciate it. Bye. Bye. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I really like the leadership parallels with family and, of course, with why you should love your work but not necessarily like it. Uh, fascinating conversation as usual. I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Show feedback and guest suggestions. The show is a fanarchy. It's run by you. I need your ideas to help keep things moving forward. And, of course, if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Simon on Twitter. We'll have that linked up in the show notes as well as his books. You can always reach me at jordan at theartofcharm.com. Our bootcamp details also at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. If you're not subscribed to the show, listen in iTunes or Stitcher. Click subscribe. That's pretty much it. And, of course, we have our iPhone and Android apps available at theartofcharm.com slash iPhone and slash Android as well. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Go ahead and tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. Podcast.